You know, I, I was just thinking, I bet you guys would just like it if I would just invite the, the choral group right back up right now, as well as the worship team. And let's just spend the rest of our morning just praising in song, God in song. I was so blessed. Praise God. You know, uh, the truths in those songs <laughs> brought me through the whole gamut of emotions this morning, from tears to outright joy. I want to thank God and thank God for our worship team, for our choral group, for just pointing us to the, to the wonder of our, the birth of our Savior. What a wonderful truth. I hope that that is, uh, that that would, uh, that truth would grip you this morning, has gripped you this morning, and you know the, the wonder of this truth and that it, the birth of Christ is, is more than just a, a holiday, national holiday. It's more than just a, a reason to come here and to be uh, attending a, a service, a Christmas Day service. But that would be the, the joy and song of your heart, the joy and song of your life. It would be the reason that we live. It's the reason that we find much joy, joy in this world because of Christ. Wonderful truths, wonderful truths. Praise God. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, please take them. And uh, look to the book of Isaiah with me this morning. I was going to uh, look to the book of Luke, uh, but our dear Elder Bill read from the very passage that I was going to read from, uh, Brother uh, Bill, so thank you for that. So I won't read that again for you, just to save us a little time uh, this morning. But we'll be in Isaiah, uh, <coughs> all of it, uh, well, no, just to select the scriptures in Isaiah. I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas. I see in our in our room today just uh, some of you who are kind of just back for Christmas Day. So glad to see you. Um, happy to have you all here. Uh, joining us on this special day. Again, uh, and then for all the rest of our church family, I'm glad to see all of you here. Uh, so thankful to God that uh, we, um, that we can worship the Lord on this day um, together. This is, uh, this is, you know, for many of us, uh, Christmas when I was a child, uh, okay, this is not in my notes, but I'm going to go off a little bit. Uh, <laughs> It was uh, waking up Christmas morning and with my family opening up gifts, uh, Christmas gifts, and then going to service, you know, church service. Uh, I never realized now that, uh, then what I now know is that though, though my parents did not plan it that way, uh, it was really the opening of gifts with our, my parents was really, uh, if you will, a symbol, a type, pointing to this when we gather together with family, our family, the family of God, and we open up again, once again, the gift, the gift, the greatest gift of all, the gift of our Savior, Jesus Christ, whom God gave to us in his son. What a joy. And I hope that uh, we delight in that this morning. Well, we'll be in Isaiah this morning. And uh, so let's, before we go to the text, let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for the gift of your son. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that in, wrapped up in the humble child is the greatest gift of all. We praise you for the Savior who was born to live and to die for our sins. Oh, Lord, pray that that truth will be the joy and and the song of our hearts. That this morning, even now as we hear your word, that we not just listen to your word, but that we will worship you in your word. 
as we reflect and remember the birth of Christ. Pray that your spirit takes your word and goes forth, Lord, and encourage in each one here, accomplishing that which you purpose to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Many of you are familiar, I believe, with uh, the the chorus of the angels that sung on that uh, Christmas uh, Christmas night, "Glory to God in the highest." Or as we've all learned to sing, "Gloria in excelsis Deus." Uh, you know, they spoke Latin back in those days. Uh, but no, uh, "Glory to God in the highest." Now, when we think about that term, we 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 write it on our Christmas cards. We we sing about it in our songs. But as I as we and as we kind of think about that theme, glory to God in the highest, it really, I pray that that would be the, the desire of our heart. You know, uh, if it were not for just my own uh, pride, I, I think I would have jumped up and shouted that at the end of our worship set this morning. Uh, but I said, oh, no, I, I must behave in, in a sober way. Uh, but glory to God in the highest. And that doesn't even come care, close to the joy that I I feel in my heart for the birth of Christ. Have you thought about what Christ means? Have you thought about how much glory God deserves in the highest heavens and also here on earth? Have we thought about the significance of the child that was born for us over 2,000 years ago? Have we thought about why he came and why God deserves all glory? Well, why do we give God glory? Why do we sing glory to God in the highest? I think for most of us, we understand that Jesus Christ was born. It's not just that he was born, but that he was born to be the Savior from our sin. And we shout amen to that. And that's reason to glorify God. But we, but there's more to it. Christ was be, born to be our Savior from sin according to the sovereign will of God. Which means that from beginning to end, God purposed it, God planned it, and God providentially brought it to pass. And that is why God deserves all the glory in the highest of heavens and upon all earth. God is glorified because the birth of Christ is according to his design and his will. And it's evidence to us when we open up the scriptures and we see the many prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ's first advent. Think about it, if you will, for a moment. If God sent us his son, if God sent his son 2,000 years ago, But he never told us about it, nor that he recorded it in the Bible for us to know about it. Would we have ever known? Would we have ever known it? You've all played the telephone game. You think oral tradition would have preserved that story 2,000 years later? No. Because God recorded it. Because God told it to us in the Bible, we who were once in the darkness now 
see the light. The only way that we could ever know, that we would ever know about the birth of Christ and the significance of that birth is because God had first told us beforehand that his son was going to be given to us. And then he told us about it after when it came to pass in the word of God. We call this prophecy, the fulfillment of biblical prophecy surrounding the birth of Christ is one of the most profound evidences for the truth of who Christ is, the reality of Christ. Sadly, even today, there are still some who say that Jesus Christ is a myth, a fairy tale. I see it almost every, every week when I read the news and I read something about Jesus. There's somebody inevitably in the comments say, oh, Jesus Christ is a myth, fairy tale. Why do you Christians still hold on to that? I grieve that there are people on this world who still think like that. It's recorded for us before and after God gave us his son. And so this morning, as we give glory to God in the highest, let us reflect on how the the truth and how the birth of Christ was the fulfillment of God's prophecies. Now, we don't have time to look at all the prophecies. We don't have time to look at all the prophecies of the birth of Christ in Isaiah alone. So we'll look at just five this morning. Five prophecies from Isaiah that are fulfilled in the birth of Christ. I'll tackle them a little bit, just in chronological, a little bit, uh, pretty much chronological order as far as the gospel's fulfillment goes, approximately. And so, and I pray that it would be encouraging to you as we worship Christ this morning, that you would, that it would begin with a response in our hearts to saying glory to God in the highest. And that that would be our song. That would be our message to the world. First and foremost, as we see, as we, as we begin, the prophecies of Christ in his, fulfilled in his birth is that he is the light in the darkness. The light that shines in the darkness. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. And I'll put uh, most of the scriptures up here too, but you can follow along in your Bible. This kind of gives you the context. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, we read these words. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Here in chapter 9, verse 1 of Isaiah and we've, we've studied this in, in, the, in our past year. God promised that the Messiah's ministry would begin and be centered around Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee was, a, even though it was a region of, of Israel, it was, a, it was an area that had many Gentiles it was a, uh, that, that lived in the area as well. And so it was a, it was a very mixed area. Now, the fulfillment of these two verses would be, would be found in first in place in Matthew chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. It'd be, uh, Matthew would quote these two exactly as it is written. Verse 2 here that we find in, in chapter 9 is the very reason for why there will be no more gloom or anguish for the people of Galilee. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. That is, they will, those who are walking in Darkness, where they cannot see, and we all know what darkness. And when you're ever in the dark, you kind of you feel like you're lost. You don't things are not clear. 
you're, have, find, have no sense of direction. When we're in the dark, darkness is also a period of where we can feel a little despairing. If you're locked in a, in a dark place and you can't get your way out, it can be distressing. And all these ideas are, are carried in, in darkness. There's also just in the scriptures, the figurative sense of darkness is that there's, there's no truth as well. But it's a figure, it's expression of distress, despair, and lostness. The phrase dark land that we find in the latter half verse 2 is the same Hebrew word. It's, we, we know it very familiar because it's it found in Psalm 23. But there it translated the shadow of death. Even though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. And so Isaiah speaking and writing of the Messiah to people living in distress in the shadow of death. He promises, God promises really, that a great light will shine on them. This is a promise of hope that when you're in the darkness, light will shine. God will shine a light for you in the darkness, in your darkness. Now, I've already mentioned Matthew 4, 15 to 16, but I want to show you a different passage in the New Testament where this is fulfilled. And it's found in Luke chapter 1, verse 79. Luke chapter 179 is the context of Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, and, and, the, and the kind of the whole circumstances around the news and the announcement of John the Baptist's birth. But Zacharias here recognized that the birth of Christ would bring this very verse to fulfillment. When he speaks about, about his son and about the Messiah, he knew that his son would be the one to prepare the way for the Lord. He knew that John the Baptist would, would, <coughs> would call people to repentance so that they could prepare for the coming of the Messiah. And here in 179, speaking of now the Christ, Zacharias says, according to Matthew, that the sunrise from on high, that's Jesus, will visit us. And this is what he will visit us for. To shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. Christ was born to shine light upon our darkness. In our anguish, in our darkest trials, in our slavery to sin, Christ came to fulfill the scriptures in fulfillment of God's promise to light the way, to point us out of the darkness. For this, God deserves the glory. I want to move on to our second prophecy, and that is the prophecy of the virgin birth. <coughs> and Christ is fulfilled, in the birth of Christ is fulfilled the prophecy of the virgin birth of the Messiah. And turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. We read in Isaiah seven fourteen this well-known prophecy, probably the most familiar uh, Old Testament prophecy of all of the birth of Christ. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now remember the context of this chapter of Isaiah 7. It was in the context of the threat of enemy nations surrounding Judah, wanting to replace King Ahaz with a puppet king. But God gives him, gives Ahaz this sign as a sign that God would deliver him. God would deliver his people. And that's what this sign means. The sign consists of, of a young virgin who would one day, who would soon give birth to a son named Emmanuel. 
before that son, verse 15 to 16 of chapter 7, further explain how before that child is about two or three, the enemy that was surrounding, that would, that was attacking Judah would be destroyed and would be forsaken. Now, when we studied this text earlier in our year, recall that this verse is a, is a prophecy that had a fulfillment that was both a near and a far, had a near and far reference. That there's a near reference in that it refers to a virgin in, in Ahaz's day who would give birth to a child named Emmanuel, who before he would turn two or three, would be, uh, the, the nation of, of Aram, Israel lines would be wiped out. But second, and most importantly, this passage, this scripture, is a, has a far reference. A farther reference. Just as many times in the Old Testament, uh, something that would take place in the Old Testament would have in the New Testament a, a, new, a, 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 a greater truth in pointing us to Christ. But here we find uh, that this is fulfilled ultimately in the birth of Jesus Christ. And the New Testament describes its announcement as well as its fulfillment. In Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 38, when the angel Gabriel was sent to the Virgin Mary, we read in verse 35, the angel, how he explains the miraculous virgin birth. He explains basically how this can be, because Mary doesn't understand, because she's a virgin. How can this happen? So like Luke chapter 1, 35 says, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. It's because the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit that comes upon Mary, that the child is conceived in her. Apart from any, any, any part of any human being, any man, the child, Jesus, is conceived of the Holy Spirit, a divine miracle. Then, in Matthew 1, 18 through 25, we read of this fulfillment of this prophecy. There in one, uh, we, after the angel's announcement to Joseph, we read in verse 22 to 23, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. In fact, Matthew says this phrase a lot. All this took place to fulfill, especially of Jesus' birth. Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. The miraculous birth of Jesus was a sign that he was the Christ and that he was truly Emmanuel. Now we understand and you kind of wonder, well, Jesus is not called Emmanuel. How can he, is that an error? No, it's not Emmanuel. It's because Jesus is literally Emmanuel. He is literally God with us. When he came and took on the form of a servant of a in the form of man and born as a baby, God took on human flesh. God was with us. And it just is weird. I just heard it for the, as I've heard the first time in our song today. <laughs> How, and I'm going to probably butcher the lyrics, but this is what I heard. When Mary kissed the, the, her baby child, she kissed the face of God. That blew my mind when I was there. I was like, wow. He is God with us. His virgin birth was a sign that God would deliver his people. Like the sign to Ahaz, the sign of the virgin birth to us today is that God will not forsake us. He will deliver us, a people enslaved to sin, living in darkness. God has sent his son 
to deliver us, and he will, and he has. The third prophecy that the birth of Christ fulfills is related to the second, and that is that we find the prophecy of the son that is given, the son that is given in Isaiah chapter 9. Back to Isaiah chapter 9, if you will. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, we read these verses. These, these verse, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The Messianic prophecy here in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 contain several elements. And if we, we could spend a whole message, and I think I've spent a whole message on this before uh, many years past. But if we just look at the main promise, the big picture here, the main promise of this prophecy is that of a child. That a child will be born to us. In particular, this child will be a son. A son will be given to us. And this child, this son, will be one who reigns in peace. There is no kingdom on earth today that is a kingdom that knows peace. Not our kingdom. Not the kingdoms around the world. Not the kingdom of Israel. Look far and wide along this and not Switzerland. There's no kingdom that has peace. But the son that is given sits on a throne of a kingdom that will be characterized by never-ending peace. This son, this child that is given to us, on one hand, as the Messiah, would be the son of David. The son of David, we see here, he sits on the throne of David. You see, remember, the Old Testament taught that the, to be a rightful ruler of Israel, one had to be a descendant of David. It was in the Davidic covenant of Second Samuel 7 that God promised a son, David, a son of David, who would sit on that throne, who would be, God would establish the throne of that kingdom forever. That son of David would be the Messiah who would reign on the throne of David as Israel's last and perfect king. We've seen many of Israel's kings. Many of them were wicked. And many of them were, some of them were good. But even the good were imperfect, weren't they? But Israel's last and final king, the son that is given, will be perfect. He will be the son of David and will rightly sit on that throne. But on the other hand, not only is he the son of David, on the other hand, the Messiah would be something more than just the son of David. He would be the son of God as well. He would be called mighty God, eternal father. Those are not things we say of human beings. These, these prophecies indicate to us that the son of God, the son of, the son of David, the Messiah, the child, who's, the son born to us is none other than divine God. In the birth of Christ, we find that Jesus was both the son of David and the son of God. That he's both Man and God, 100% man, 100% God. In that very same Luke passage where Gabriel appeared to Mary, we read in Luke chapter 1, verse 32 to 33, He will be great, and we call the Son of the Most High, that is, the Son of God. 
And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. See, he's the son of God, and he's the son of David. The fulfillment, though, the fulfillment of this son prophecy is most clearly recorded in the most familiar verse of all, in all of our Bible. And that's in John 3.16, isn't it? The son that was promised to us is the son that God gave. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, only the son of David could sit on the throne of God's eternal kingdom. But only the son of God could come and die on the cross for the world's sins and rise from the grave to justify man. He came to bring, establish a kingdom of peace. A kingdom that is already, that he, in a sense, he reigns from in heaven, but will one day be established on earth in the millennial kingdom when he returns again. The peace that his death has accomplished between us and God is more than just for the nation Israel. It's for the world as well. And this is brought forth into the fourth prophecy of the Messiah, of the Christ's birth. And that is that he is the, is the prophecy of the light to the nations. In his birth, we see the light to the nations. And God he deserves the glory for this. Now, we looked at this passage last week. And I, but it's worth looking at again. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, he says, God says, God says to the servant, to the Messiah, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is the second of those four servant song passages. And in it, God promises to them, to the Messiah, to the Messiah and the servant that he would not only be a light of salvation to Israel, but he would be a light to the nations. He would shine darkness, light into darkness, not only for the people of Judah and people of the northern kingdom of Israel, but he would shine light to the nations. Yes, to Assyria. Yes, to Babylon. Yes, to Rome. Yes, around the world to here, the United States of America. His gospel of salvation will reach the ends of the earth regardless of nation, nationality. For whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Now as for the fulfillment of this prophecy, we find this verse quoted in Luke chapter 2, verse 32, by a man named Simeon. Simeon had been waiting for the Messiah. He was, he was told by God that he would not die until he saw the Messiah, the consolation, the comfort of Israel. And he saw Jesus when Jesus was simply eight days old. They brought, they brought, Mary and Joseph brought him to the temple to be circumcised. And this is when we read of Simeon, when he says of the Lord to the Lord, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon prophetically revealed that Jesus was God's provision of salvation. Jesus is your salvation. Jesus is our salvation. He, and he, 
<coughs> he recognized that that salvation would be not just for God's people Israel, but it would be a light of he would be a light of revelation to the Gentiles as well. We know when Jesus walked on the earth, his his ministry, his three year ministry, was focused primarily upon the nation of Israel. But every once in a while, when you read the passage, you kind of realize he's speaking to a someone who's not Jewish. He's speaking to a Samaritan woman. He's speaking to a Roman centurion. And we kind of take it for granted today, but in those days, that was a greatly that was a profound truth because people, the Israelites, thought that he had come to save them, not the world. Not Gentiles. But it was already, even then, when he walked on earth, it was already ministering to the Gentiles, the nations. It was at his own, his ascension, that he commissioned his disciples in Acts 1-8 to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. God's plan of salvation from the beginning was to save a people from all over, all over the earth. From every tribe, tongue, and nation. We are blessed recipients of that prophecy. We are those who are, have seen this light in our darkness. And God deserves the glory because he planned it and he brought it to pass. The fifth and final prophecy that we'll look at this morning, is that Jesus, when Jesus, in the birth of Christ, he came and fulfilled the, the prophecy of the branch of Jesse, the branch of Jesse. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 is where we find it. And uh, we looked at this also earlier in the year. And we read this. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. We get a little bit of agricultural imagery here. But here we find another messianic prophecy concerning the Messiah's ancestry, his background, that he will be a descendant of Jesse. He would come from the stem of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. We had seen uh, also earlier in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, this, this term branch, this branch terminology used of the Messiah already. You kind of wonder why is the Messiah called a branch? I get it that he's called the light, right? He shines light in our darkness, darkness sin. Why is he called a branch? Is he something like a branch to hang on to when you're hanging over the cliff? Is that it? You know? Why is he called a branch? Do you know? Do you remember? The concept finds its beginning in David's final words. David's final words in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 5. There, among many of David's words, he says this in verse 5. He's speaking of God's promise to him of the eternal covenant. For his son, <clears throat> truly is not my house so with God, for he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured for all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not indeed make it grow? He's referring to the Davidic covenant, the promise of God to, to establish uh, one of his sons as, as the, on the throne that would never end. And David has great confidence, even at his death. He's not going to see it in his lifetime. But he has great confidence that God has ordered it. God has secured it. It is, and it's for his salvation. Even though he's going to die, he knows that the fulfillment of this problem, of the, of the eternal covenant is for his salvation. It's for his salvation and for ours. 
And he confidently says, will God not make it grow? Will you not make it sprout up? You know, the picture is of a, of a, of a tree or a plant and a little bit, you know, if you're kind of any tree, you'll find the, a little bit of sprout will grow out of the, out of a, you know, the tree. That's pretty insignificant. A lot of times you just kind of, you know, you're pruning, you just slip those because you don't want those to keep growing because they just take out water. It's an insignificant beginning, but that is a growth of that plant, that tree. It sprouts. It's a new branch. And David is confident that God is going to cause a branch to grow, to sprout. He will make the promise of his covenant to come to pass. God will cause it, even with, even, even if it means, even though it will have an insignificant beginning. That is what the branch means. Branches. He's also called the shoot from the shoot stem, stem of Jesse. He's a branch, a twig, a shoot that sprouts from the line of Jesse to be the Messiah, to sit on the throne, but not just to be the Messiah, because he would, but to come to bring salvation for David and salvation for us. Now, this prophecy of the branch would find its fulfillment. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. In this passage, Joseph had taken Mary and Jesus to Egypt. He had fled to Egypt because God had warned him to escape the murderous plans of King Herod. But after Herod's death, Joseph brought Mary and Jesus back to Israel. But he didn't go to Jerusalem. He didn't go to Bethlehem. Instead, he settled in Galilee, in a town called Nazareth. We read, and he came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken to the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. <coughs> Interestingly, uh, when we look at this, if we were going to study Matthew 22 and 23 in its, uh, by itself, we kind of would want to find out where, where is it said in the Old Testament's prophets, that he shall be called a Nazarene. And so, you know, you get your concordance out, or you get your Bible search and go, he shall be called a Nazarene. Search for that. And you will find it in vain. Okay, You won't find it. You will not find these exact words mentioned. So what does it mean? How can this be true? Is this error? Well, the Hebrew word for branch in Isaiah 11.1 1 is the word... In Hebrew, I'll just, I have to say in Hebrew, so if you free, is netzer, netzer. There's a three, uh, three consonants there. In, in Hebrew, almost all words are in three consonants. And that shares the same root consonants as netzerine, netzerine. He shall be called a branch. It's a play on words here in this in this prophecy. And it's not just. And notice it says through the prophets. Not only would it is does Isaiah prophesy of uh, that he was that Jesus would be a branch, but Jeremiah would do it as well. And so Jesus, when he came and when he grew up in Nazareth, he fulfilled the the prophecy that he would be a branch 
there's this picture, and, and there's significance too in being born, raised up in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, but raised up in Nazareth. Because Nazareth was also an insignificant city or town, if you will, in an insignificant region of an insignificant nation of the Roman Empire. No one thought the Messiah would come from Galilee. They would have thought if the Messiah is going to be born and he's going to come out, he's going to come from Jerusalem. That's where the kings sit, right? They actually had to search for a while to figure out that, oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. They would have never thought that he would come from Galilee. Galilee of the Gentiles? From Nazareth? What good comes from Nazareth? Says some of the apostles. Jesus, according to scripture, as the branch, and when in, and in history, according to Matthew 2, came and began insignificantly, with an insignificant beginning. People do not think much of it, but he would grow, he would live, and he would accomplish, fulfill God's salvation for mankind. The insignificant appearance and growth of the Messiah is found elsewhere. It's prophesied elsewhere in Isaiah. And I want to turn one more place in Isaiah. Back to Isaiah 53, verse 2, where we see this, this insignificance of his growth described. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. So again, we see our, have our agricultural imagery. And like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form and majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. See, Jesus, according to prophecy, would be the branch. He would be the, the, the one from which God would cause to grow, who would fulfill the Davidic covenant to bring salvation. But he would fulfill this prophecy of Isaiah where he would be born a humble child in a humble manger to a humble family of a humble town. And as the branch of Jesse, he grew up to die a humble death for our sins. And for this, God deserves all the glory in the highest. These five prophecies of the birth of Christ, (coughs) the light and the darkness, the virgin birth, the son that is given, the light in the nations, and the branch of Jesse are just a few of the prophecies that came to pass in the birth, life, and death of Jesus. And they powerfully attest to who he is, does he not? You know, I've used this illustration before, but I'll tell it to you again a little differently. Uh, if I told you that I'm going to send my friend to your house sometime this year, actually, I'm just going to tell you sometime, I'm going to send you my friend. It doesn't have to be this year. You don't know who he looks like. I'm not going to tell you. But I'm going to tell you that my friend is going to be a short guy driving a white car, wearing a black jacket, speaking with an accent, and carrying a flash, carrying a Bible with him. Okay. So when a short guy driving a white car, wearing a black jacket, speaking with an accent, and carrying a Bible shows up at your door, who do you think that guy is? You think he's my friend, right? Actually, if he just showed up at your door, a short guy carrying a Bible, he's oh, that must be PH's friend. Maybe he's just drove in a white car with a blackjack. Oh, that's PH's friend. 
He's speaking with an accent and driving a white car. Oh, that, that could be Google Express or, you know, one of the deliveries. But no, he's carrying a Bible. So oh, that's PH's friend. Well, I gave you five conditions. Five conditions. And if all five were, show, were fulfilled and that guy was knocking at your door, you'd say, oh, absolutely. That is PH's friend. Today we've seen that Jesus' birth fulfilled five even more very detailed and specific prophecies from the Old Testament. In fact, in the book of Isaiah alone, there are 30 prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus. Not to mention all the other prophecies found in the other Old Testament books. In Isaiah, in the Old Testament, God has told us that he would send his son. God has told us what to look for, who to look for. In the Gospels, in the New Testament, we see that Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled these prophecies. All the evidence of fulfilled scripture point to the fact that Christ was born to be our Savior from sin, according to the sovereign will of God, which means that from the beginning to the end, God purposed it, God planned it, and God providentially brought it to pass. Will you not join with me and say glory to God in the highest? Glory to God in the highest. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. No, Glory to you, Lord. Glory. We are awed by the wonder of Christ's birth. Of how in him exactly all that you promised about him came to pass. And Lord, that alone is amazing. But you sent him for for a purpose. To save us from our sins. And so Lord. What great confidence. Lord you have secured it. We know. We believe. That because you sent your son. 2000 years ago. We have confidence to believe. That you will save us from our sins. Through faith in him. Lord. Lord. We pray that we would glory in you this day, this year, and always. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not yet know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, they have not believed upon him, may you cause them to see now the light, the light of Christ for the first time. Help them to see who he is and why he came, that he came to die from the cross for their sins, that you would cause them to turn from their life of sin to repent from their rebellion against you, that they would believe and put their trust in Christ and what he did on the cross for their sins. Lord, may they experience the joy, the joy that we know, the joy that comes from having salvation in Christ, the Lord, who was born 2,000 years ago. Thank you, Father, for this, <clears throat> this time of worship in your word. 
We thank you and praise you for our worship this day. Lord, may the joy we experience spending time with dear friends and family around a meal, opening up gifts, remind us always of the joy that we have being part of your family because of the greatest gift of all in your son, Jesus. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Merry Christmas, y'all. Uh, have a wonderful day, and uh, we'll see. Uh, head on out to, if you have this.